Part one, chapter seven of Recollections of the Revolution and the Empire. This is a LibriVox recording, or LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. 1787-1788, first season in society. My sister-in-law, Madame de Lamette, for whom I had conceived the most tender friendship, had been kept at Paris by the illness of her youngest son until the month of October, 1787. As the colonels were still with their regiments and not able to return, my sister-in-law proposed to me the first of October that I should accompany her to the country. My husband could then rejoin us, as his regiment was in garrison at Saint-Omer, a short distance from Enoncourt, between Amiens and Arras. The difficulty was to arrange this trip with my grandmother, who in the absence of my husband had again assumed her authority over me. Neither I nor my sister-in-law had the courage to make the proposition to her. We therefore devised the scheme of having the request made by my husband himself. On the appointed day the letter arrived, and my grandmother, without preamble, brusquely demanded, When are you going to leave? To which I replied, trembling, that my sister-in-law awaited me. Accordingly, we set out together. Our maids were in my carriage, Madame de Lamette, her two children, and myself in her carriage. I have preserved the most charming recollections of this trip. We went to Lille to see the Marquis de Lamette, my brother-in-law, who was there with his regiment. I had never had so much pleasure as during this short journey. With my husband I visited all the establishments, military and civil. When it was finally decided that France should abandon the Holland patriots to their unfortunate fate, permission was given the colonels to return to Paris. My husband and I therefore set out for Montfermeil, while my sister-in-law remained in the country until the beginning of winter. Soon after my return, my uncle and grandmother left for Montpellier. It had been arranged that during the absence of my relatives we should live with our aunt, Madame Denis. As she was to introduce me to society, this arrangement was agreeable and convenient. It was not then customary for a young lady to appear alone in public the first year of her marriage. When she went out in the morning to pay visits or shop, she always took a maid with her in her carriage. Certain old dames carried this rigorism so far as to blame those who went out even with their husbands for a promenade in the Champs-Élysées or the Tuileries Gardens, and thought in such cases they should be followed by a lackey in livery. My husband considered this custom insupportable, and we never submitted to this etiquette. Once established with my aunt, we found ourselves much happier and more tranquil than with my grandmother. Nearly every evening we went to the theatre, where the performances then ended early enough to permit us going to supper afterwards. My aunt and I had permission to occupy the Queen's boxes. This was a favour which was accorded to only six or eight of the youngest ladies of the palace. She had a loge at the Opera, at the Comédie Française, and at the theatre then called the Comédie Italienne, where opera comique was given in French. We had only to read the daily papers 
to make our choice between the different theatres. These stage boxes were furnished like elegant salons. Every box had a large antechamber, well heated and lighted, and a private staircase communicated with the antechamber where the servants remained. At the entrance was a porter in the king's livery. You never had to wait a moment for your carriage. Generally, we went to the Comédie Italienne for the first piece, which was always the best, and to the opera for the ballet. Since I am now established with my aunt, this is the moment to speak of the society in which she moved, which was the most elegant and the most highly considered in Paris by which I was adopted the first year I was out. This clique was composed of four very distinguished ladies, joined together from their youth by a friendship which in their eyes represented a sort of religion, and which was perhaps the only one that they possessed. These four ladies, very highly esteemed on account of their rank in the world, were, besides Madame de Nines, the Princesse de Poix, the Duchesse de Biron and the Princesse de Bouillon. At the time of my marriage, my aunt, Madame Denine, was thirty-eight years of age. She had espoused at the age of fifteen the Prince Denine, younger brother of the Prince de Chimay, who was only seventeen. They were admired as the handsomest couple who had ever appeared at court. The second year of her marriage, Madame Denine had an attack of smallpox and this malady, which they did not then know how to treat properly, left upon her face an eruption which was never cured. However, she was still very beautiful when I knew her, with fine hair, charming eyes, teeth like pearls, a superb figure, and a very noble air. Until the death of her mother, she resided with her. Monsieur Dendine had an apartment in the house of Madame de Montconseil, but although he was not judicially separated from his wife, he nevertheless resided apart with an actress of the Comédie Française, who was ruining him. The court, justified by its indifference, these kind of liaisons, it was laughed at as the most simple thing in the world. At that time, the ladies of high society were marked by the audacity with which they made a parade of their love affairs. These intrigues were known almost as soon as formed, and when they were durable, they acquired a sort of consideration. In the society of les princesses combinées, as they were called, there were exceptions, however, to these blamable customs. Madame de Poix, who was deformed, lame, and crippled a great part of the year, had never been accused of any intrigues. When I first knew her, she still had a charming face, although forty years of age. She was the most amiable person in the world. Madame de Lausanne, who was later Duchesse de Biron, after the death of my respectful admirer, the Marshal of that name, was an angel of kindness and goodness. After the death of the Maréchale de Luxembourg, her grandmother, with whom she had lived, and who kept the finest house in Paris, she had bought an hôtel, Rue de Bourbon, looking out on the river. This she had arranged with simple elegance. 
in harmony with her handsome fortune and the modesty of her character. She lived here alone, for her husband, following the example of Monsieur Lenin, passed his time with an actress of the Comédie Française. Since the death of his mother, whose happy influence had kept him in good company, he had mixed with the habitués of the Duc d'Orléans, Égalité, who corrupted all who approached him. The Duchesse de Lausanne had a very curious library, with many manuscripts of Rousseau, among others that of La Nouvelle Héloïse, entirely written in his own hand. Also a quantity of letters and notes which he had written to Madame de Luxembourg. The Princesse de Bouillon had married when very young the last Duc de Bouillon, who was an imbecile and a cripple. She lived with him in the Hôtel de Bouillon upon the Quai Malaquais. He was never seen because he remained always in his apartment with the persons who looked after him. During the summer he went to his place at Navarre, the fine estate which later belonged to the Empress Josephine, but I think that Madame de Bouillon never went there. She was a person of great spirit and charm, and I think was the most distinguished of my acquaintances. At no time could she have been pretty. She was exceedingly thin, almost a skeleton, with a flat German face, retrousse nose, wretched teeth, and yellow hair. With all this, she had so much esprit, such original ideas, and her conversation was so amusing that she attracted and enchanted everybody. Her kindness to me was very great, and I was quite proud of it. Nevertheless, this homely and spiritual princess had had one or several lovers. She was bringing up a little girl who in a striking manner resembled her as well as the Prince Emmanuel de Samsam. He passed for being the lover whom she had adopted for life, but certainly at that time he was only a friend. A very tall man, as thin as his mistress, he always appeared to me to be insipid, although he was said to be learned. I would like to believe that, but he hid his treasures, and I cannot recall anything of his conversation. The Chevalier de Coigny, brother of the Duke, who was first equerry of the King, was supposed before the time of my marriage to be the lover of my aunt. At least he had that reputation. Later on he formed a strong attachment for Madame de Monsange, wife of the Femier General and mother of the charming Comtesse Etienne Dufour, whom he afterwards married. I was very fond of this fat chevalier, who was of so gay and amiable a nature. As he was fifty years of age, I talked with him as often as possible. He recounted to me a thousand anecdotes which I remembered, and which perhaps would be amusing if I were to relate them. Destined to live in that grand monde and at the court, I listened with interest to his recitals, for a knowledge of pastimes was useful to me. A mansion which we all visited, and where I was received with the most affectionate familiarity, was that of Madame de Montesson. She loved my husband like a son. After the death of his grandmother, Madame de Montconseil, 
He had lived there until the day of his marriage. She received me with extreme kindness. I was also bound by ties of friendship to Madame de Valence, the daughter of her niece, Madame de Genlis. Madame de Valence was three years older than myself and was then considered a model young woman. It is well known that Madame de Montesson was the legitimate wife of the Duc d'Orléans, the father of Philippe Egalité, to whom she had been married by the Archbishop of Toulouse. The king was unwilling to recognise this marriage, and she ceased to visit the court. The Duc d'Orléans gave up his residence at the Palais Royal to establish himself in a house, Rue de Provence, adjoining that which Madame de Montesson had bought in the Chaussée d'Antin. The separating walls were torn down and the two gardens were united. The Duc always kept his separate entrance, Rue de Provence, with a Swiss in his livery, while Madame de Montesson also had her private entrance. But the courts remained connected. The house of Madame de Montesson bore a very good reputation. She saw the best company in Paris, and the most distinguished, from the oldest sets to the youngest. She no longer gave large parties, as during the life of the Duc d'Orléans, which I much regretted. She immediately adopted me for a daughter, and from her great experience in the world, her conversation and her counsels were very useful to me. Hardly a day passed without my visiting Madame de Valence, and often, when the hour was advanced, Madame de Montesson kept me for dinner. On her return to Paris, my grandmother came to see me. She soon learned from my conversation of my success in the world, and the fine reception which I had received from a large number of persons whom she disliked. From this moment, I think, she resolved to seize the first occasion which presented itself to oblige us to leave my uncle's house. Nevertheless, for the moment, I returned to the Hotel Dillon, where they had arranged for me a charming apartment in the Monsards, which was reached, unfortunately, by a small turning staircase. I do not remember the circumstances which finally led to the rupture with my relatives. After several months of repeated quarrels, my grandmother requested us to leave her house. In spite of my tears and the intervention of my uncle, the Archbishop, whose affection we had gained, but who feared my grandmother too much to offer any opposition, we were obliged to leave the Hotel Dillon, never to return. This was about the month of June, 1788. My aunt received us at her house with great kindness. It was nevertheless a great chagrin for me to be separated from my family. This epoch was one of the most painful of my life. It was the first real grief that I had ever known, and the remembrance of it is still painful to me, though I cannot in any way reproach myself for having provoked it. End of Part 1 Chapter 7